0: Well good morning once again. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 18. If you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary uh, Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. And this morning we are going to enter into chapter 18. Now Let me just stop and say again that as we look at the four Gospels, we can see that three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are similar. And because of that, they are known as the Synoptic Gospels, from a Greek word that means to see together or to share a common point of view. The Synoptic Gospels focus primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry and his public teachings, whereas John's gospel is unique in that it focuses mainly on Jesus' Jesus' Judean ministry and his private teachings to his disciples. You may not know this, but almost one half of John's entire gospel deals with the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and half of that focuses on the last 12 hours of his life before the cross. And guys, this gives us a detailed look into the final hours of Jesus' life in a way we just don't see, uh, we don't get from the synoptic Gospels. Uh, and what's really valuable is that John's Gospel focuses on the time he spent right before the cross with his closest men in the final hours of his life. And uh, in, in particular, the critical teaching he gave to them that we have called his farewell address starting in chapter 13, running through chapter 16, but also indirectly including chapter 17 as he prayed to his father with them standing there. And he did that so that he they could hear what he was praying because in a way he was teaching them also about what he wanted them to pray for uh, after he ascended back to his father and they began to do the work of the kingdom in his absence. So let me just say, give you a little time frame here at this point in john's gospel it is probably just after midnight the evening as we all know began in chapter 13 in an upper room somewhere in jerusalem we're not told where where jesus and his 12 apostles disciples observed the passover together now during the meal judas iscariot left to carry out his betrayal of christ And after Judas left the room, Jesus instituted communion, and then he began to give his disciples one final teaching before his crucifixion to comfort them and to prepare them for what was coming the next day. Now at the end of chapter 14, Jesus said to the 11 remaining disciples, arise, let us go from here. And so at that point, Jesus and his disciples left the upper room and began to make their way through the streets of Jerusalem toward the eastern gate. Now, the eastern gate was also known as the Golden Gate. And guys, that was the gate that they had to exit through, they had to um, the gate which they needed to exit the city through uh, to make their way to the Mount of Olives and ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located on that mount. Jesus would often retreat to this garden after a long day of ministry in Jerusalem to spend time with his father in prayer, sometimes praying all night to his father. This night would once again find him spending time in prayer in that very garden. The only difference being that this would be the last night he would be spending time in that garden praying. Of course, you say, does that mean he never prayed again? Of course, (laughs) he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's continuing his prayers for all of us from heaven. So it brings us to the beginning of John 18, looking at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, probably a reference to his prayer in chapter 17, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Let me stop. At this point, I need to say, after I just told you, how that John's Gospel gives us a more detailed look into the final hours of Jesus' life than any of the others, well, There's always an exception to the rule. So in these opening verses of chapter 18, John doesn't give us a more complete look at the events that transpired that morning, that morning because it was after midnight. But in fact, he skips over a very important piece of the narrative that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus' betrayal and arrest. I'm going to divide the first 12 verses of John 18 into two parts, even though the first part isn't even in John 18. Okay. I'm going to divide what happened that evening into two parts. Jesus' agony in the garden, and then Jesus' arrest in the garden. Now, that first point, Jesus' agony in the garden, we're going to have to turn to Matthew 26 to really see this. Because, again, John skips over it. So Matthew 26, where we will spend our time looking at this first main point, Jesus' agony in the garden, let's pick it up in verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Now, let me just say again, the Garden of Gethsemane is located on the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley, about uh, six-tenths of a mile from Jerusalem. The wealthy people of Jerusalem had gardens on the Mount of Olives. Why? Well, primarily because they couldn't have gardens within, within the city of Jerusalem. Why couldn't they? Because there was an ordinance. It's always an ordinance for something. The leaders had imposed an ordinance that you couldn't use fertilizers within the walls of the city. So the wealthy had the money to have gardens right across the Kidron Valley on top of the Mount of Olives. And as as I said, there was one particular garden there that Jesus uh, liked to go to, either alone to spend some time with his father in prayer or simply to spend some quality time with his disciples after a hard and long day of ministry in Jerusalem. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane, which immediately causes us, (laughs) who live in the West, to to, uh, picture something along the lines of an English garden with all kinds of beautiful flowers, right? It wasn't that kind of garden. We think it, you know, people read that and go, the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, how lovely flowers everywhere you know well it wasn't that kind of garden the garden of gethsemane was an olive orchard in fact gethsemane means oil press oil press because it was the place where olives were crushed and pressed to release their oil and guys this would be a fitting place for jesus to spend his final hours before being arrested because listen he would endure a crushing of sorts that morning. The crushing, the pressing, and the subsequent agony that Jesus endured in Gethsemane as he was about to feel the weight of humanity's sin laid upon him on the cross so far exceeds, I think, anything we can even begin to imagine that it is rendered incomprehensible to our human minds. What would cause somebody to be under such pressure and duress that they would literally sweat blood goes beyond our ability to understand that we'll talk about that more when we get to it but uh, for right now again i want to remind you that the garden of gethsemane contained private gated and therefore locked gardens owned by well to do citizens of jerusalem so how did jesus and his disciples get in well most people believe that he knew the owner in fact, the owner was probably one of his disciples who had given Jesus a key to the garden so that he and his disciples could come and go at will. He knew he liked to use the garden after a long day of ministry for prayer. And so this, uh, this wealthy gentleman, whoever he was, uh, had no doubt given Jesus. Did Jesus need a key to get into the garden? No. <laughs> but you know what? God is not a lawbreaker. And God respects his own laws. And, of course, private property was something God ordained in the law. I mean, a civilized society is built on the idea of private property, owning things. When you own something, I'm getting way off the topic. When you own something, you t- you have a vested interest in keeping it nice and, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so Jesus could have spoken a word and blown the gates right off the hinges if he wanted to. He uh, didn't. And so uh, the owner uh, gave him, no doubt, a key, and he and his disciples used it whenever they were in Jerusalem ministering because it was so close to the city, this garden. And um, so Jesus and his disciples came to the garden, but the Gospels record that he left eight of them, eight of his disciples, near the entrance. And he only took Peter, James, and John into the garden to keep him company while he prayed. Look at verse 36 once again. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to, to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Now guys, Jesus knew full well what was coming in just a few hours. Don't ever let anyone tell you, because whole books have been written about this, like the Passover plot back in 1968. Whole books have been written to tell us that Jesus was caught off guard. That his crucifixion completely, you know, took him by surprise. That is an absolute lie from the pit. We know that because just a few hours earlier in the upper room, he said to all of his disciples, while Judas was still there, one of you is going to betray me tonight. And it set them buzzing. And they were, was it me? Is it me? You know, and Judas, who was reclining right behind Jesus, whispered into his ear, master, is it me? And Jesus said, you've said it. It's you, and at that point Judas left the room to carry out his betrayal. But don't ever let anyone tell you that the events of the next of that day, that morning, we're going to take Jesus by surprise. If you buy into that, you're going to miss a big chunk of what was going on in that garden, and we'll get to that eventually. But in his humanity, Jesus' soul longed for some some encouragement and companionship from his closest disciples. But unfortunately. That wasn't to be as Peter, James, and John fell asleep. We'll see that in verse 40. Once again, verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, guys, the cup that Jesus mentions here was the cup of suffering and death. A cup that he had mentioned earlier in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 20, verse 22, when he said to his disciples, but in particular to James and John, who um, had their mother come and asked Jesus if her boys could sit, one at his right hand, one at his left hand, in the kingdom. They were too afraid to ask him themselves. So, Mama, would you go and ask for us? You know, big, tough fisherman, right? Um, To which Jesus responded in Matthew Matthew 20, verse 22, You do not know what you ask, James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The cross, suffering and dying, the cross. They said to him, we're able. How clueless we are often to all of us, myself included, you know? I mean, how clueless we often are because we're not really plugged into the situation. We're looking at it superficially, right? If John and James had really been listening to Jesus, along with the other disciples, they would have known he was going to the cross. He said it uh, three times, I believe, maybe four, before he ever got to the cross okay anyways just to let you know a cup is uh, often used in scripture to denote an instrument containing god's wrath and judgment i give you some examples in psalm 75 verse 8 we read for in the hand of the lord there is a cup and the wine is red it is fully mixed and he pours it out surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. In Isaiah 51, verse 22, God describes the cup as the, and I'm quoting, the cup of trembling, the cup of my fury. In Jeremiah 25, verse 15, he calls it the cup of the wine of my wrath. No doubt using wine as a symbol because wine is red, blood is red. It makes an apt comparison in ezekiel chapter 23 verse 33 the lord refers to it as the cup of horror and desolation you're getting the picture right Uh, let's do one more i'll have you turn to this one revelation chapter 14 can't we can't not mention this one revelation 14 starting with verse 9 And a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, the Antichrist, and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, listen, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, And in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Of course, this fire and brimstone is hell, where they will suffer forever. Now guys, all of these describe God's judgment being poured out upon, listen, the wicked. The wicked, if they don't repent or if they refuse to repent. However, here in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus uses it to speak of the cup of God's judgment that was about to be poured out upon himself, upon Jesus, in just a few hours. Again, Matthew 26, verse 39, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And just one more time, this cup is the cup of God's wrath which was poured out full strength on Jesus when he hung on the cross and paid for our sins, dying in our place. But because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us in our place, it allowed him to offer us the cup of communion. Isn't that nice how that works? He drank from the cup of judgment on our behalf. It allowed him to give to us the cup of communion to drink on his behalf. Luke 22:20. 20, you don't have to turn there, um, but it speaks, the cup of communion speaks of forgiveness and fellowship. And without the cup Jesus drank, the cup of God's wrath, we could never enjoy fellowship with our God in his kingdom. Well, one more time, verse 39 he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying oh my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to peter what could you not watch with me one hour i mean the lord asked so little of these guys you know he was always serving them and doing for them and giving to them, could you just watch an hour? I really need the companionship. It's a big, tough night for me. Well, they had ate a heavy meal, Passover. We always overeat at Thanksgiving, right? Well, it was kind of like that Thanksgiving. You know, they they ate well, and now it was late. It was after they were tired. Okay, Jesus said, you know, <laughs> could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me camp on this just for a few minutes. Uh, There's something here that I really want to bring out. And um, let me just say that here Jesus tells us that believers in him have two natures that struggle with one another for dominance and control of our lives. The flesh and the spirit. Now, the flesh is a reference to our fallen nature, which we were born with, which we inherited from our father, our earthly father, Adam. Our fallen nature is that part of us that wants to live in rebellion against God. The spirit refers to our new nature, the divine nature, as Peter called it, the nature of God, which was born in us when we gave our hearts to Jesus and were born of the spirit. So here, guys, the Spirit is God's divine nature in us. It is that part of us that desires to live in obedience to God now that we are saved. And uh, if we remember before we were born again and the passions we had and how we just satisfied whatever we wanted to do, basically. But now that we're saved, we have a new nature. And there is a battle going on within us. Um, as we're going to, well, these two natures are at constant war with each other um, for control of our lives. And, of course, the classic passage on this is Galatians five sixteen and 17, where Paul said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh, our fallen nature, wars, or lusts constantly against the Spirit, our new nature, of the Holy Spirit in particular and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. There is this battle. Paul said in Romans 7, the things I really want to do, I don't always do. The things I don't want to do, those things I often do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this war? He starts out chapter 8 of Romans by saying, praise God, it's the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And you can go online and list because that's an important subject. Uh, but it starts with Galatians 5, how that we are at war. Uh, there's a war going on inside of us. Uh, the good news is we get to determine which of our natures is going to be victorious. We, we get to determine that, right? But Jesus commended or commanded Peter and all his disciples to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Matthew 26, verse 41. Or in other words, guys, watch out for and constantly pray against temptation. Now, this is something that I'm sure we don't always do. We should because Jesus told us to. We know that Satan's going to bring temptation our way at some point in our day, probably throughout our day. So we need to expect it, be on guard against it, and purpose in our hearts before it comes, how we're going to handle it. Just like, I believe, Joseph did when he worked for Potiphar. Remember, he was a slave in Potiphar's house uh, in uh, uh, Genesis, starting around chapter 37 is when the story starts. Um, But we are told that Potiphar was uh, a, a... was a commanding officer in Pharaoh's army. He was gone a lot on affairs of state, you know, military stuff, no doubt. But um, he left Joseph, who was only about 17 or 18 at this time, he left Joseph as his main steward. A steward was one like a house manager. They took care of everything. They took care of uh, the other slaves and ordered supplies, and they just basically oversaw the running of a house. A guy like Pharaoh had a lot of servants. And so they needed somebody to kind of orchestrate and watch over and so on. Um, but the Bible makes it a point to tell us that jo- young Joseph was extremely handsome. That was a good build, real handsome guy. And Potiphar's wife was lonely, to say the least. And she lusted after Joseph. And Joseph no doubt knew that immediately. And so I believe Joseph, being a very godly young guy, He kept drawing close to God every day. He knew he had to come and have contact with this woman. Every day she would tempt him. Please lie with me. Come, let's go to bed together. And he would keep telling her, I can't do that. I I can't sin against my master and against my God in that way. And I believe that he was already purposing in his heart if she pushed the issue, how he was going to handle it, and basically he was going to run. But that's what I want you to understand. Um, You have to plan for temptation before it comes your way. It's coming. That's a given. So begin to pray now how to handle it. And by God's grace, how to face it. Because if you wait until it comes knocking and you open the door to it, you're probably going to fall to it. Probably going to fall to it. And by the way, don't make yourself an easy target for the devil by going to places where temptation can easily overcome you. If you've got a problem with alcohol and you're trying to be sober, well, you don't go with the guys or the gals after work to the bar, even though you plan on only having a soft drink. But you want to hang out a little bit and show them that, you know, you're one of the guys and one of the gals. It's too easy there for that soft drink to be changed for a hard drink. Don't do it. Folks, that's why I don't go to all-you-can-eat buffets anymore. I know I'm going to overeat. I mean, that's just sin waiting to happen. You pay the fourteen dollars you're going to eat. So I don't go there anymore. But um, anyways, one of the big ways we handle temptation, yes, pray. Prepare for it. Uh, plan your escape. First of all, loathe it. Don't be flattered by it. Joseph wasn't flattered by Potiphar's wife's advancements. When you start being flattered by that kind of temptation, you're already, I think, 75% in the way of sin. you got to loathe it. you got to see anyone who would flatter you come on to you. It's not as something to be, whoa, that makes me feel pretty good about myself. No. It's the devil trying to use somebody to take from you everything that is important in your life, starting with your marriage, your ministry, and right down the line. It is not something to be flattered by. It's it's something to be horrified by. And you need to plan your escape even before it comes knocking. But remember, one of the main ways that we uh, we um, resist temptation is by feeding on God's word daily. That's going to strengthen all of us. I'll just read to you what the psalmist said. Psalm 119 verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right now please let me just say this. Some people read this and think that it says like you know the word of God is like magic pixie dust. If I can sprinkle some verses on my life, somehow it's magic, you know? Most of you are way too young to remember the cartoon, Underdog? Underdog? Every time he started getting weak, he had a little pill he would take. He popped that pill, a little power pill, and right away he was back strong, right? Some people have that impression of God's Word. Pop a couple verses and I'm Superman, right, or Superwoman. What the psalmist is saying is, if I want to resist temptation, I have to know what God says about certain things. How that he forbids them. How that they are abhorrent to him. And when they come knocking at your door in the way of temptation, well, th- though that knowledge will be a point of conviction that the Holy Spirit can use to tell you, wait, wait, I read in my devotions this morning This very thing. Oh no, no way. And it's a point of conviction to keep you from giving into it. Uh, A lot of Christians are not in the Bible and I've had over the years Christians ask me about certain things that I know are sin because the Bible says it clearly but apparently they're not reading their Bibles. So they're not sure. And I have an opportunity to take them to a passage or two. But that's what we have to do. Get in the Word, right? Now let me just... I'm, I'm sorry, let me just say this. The Word of God in other places commands us to be watching and praying. You have to turn to these. Ephesians 6, verse 18. Praying always, after he talks about putting on the whole armor of God, right? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Notice how he's really emphasizing this. Praying always, right? always um, being watchful and so on first Peter 4 verse 7 but the end of all things is at hand therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers that's assuming Christians are praying uh, you got to be praying first before you can be serious in your prayers okay and you know what constitutes serious prayers for me when I'm praying in accordance to God's will If I'm praying for a new Cadillac or the nicest house in town because that's what some joker on TV with some ministry told me to, you know, that's not a serious prayer. That's not a kingdom prayer, right? It's my kingdom prayer. It's not God's kingdom prayer. Anyways. All right, again, Matthew 26, 41, watch, which means stay awake and alert and pray lest you enter into temptation. Guys, this admonition by the Lord Jesus is no less relevant and vital today as it was when he first gave it to his disciples in the garden roughly 2,000 years ago. You know, it's interesting, the first two people that gave into temptation, what were their names? Adam and Eve also found themselves in a garden. But they didn't watch and pray, did they? And so the devil was able to tempt them, and they fell. And I don't know, maybe Jesus even had in mind Adam and Eve when uh, he admonished his disciples in that garden. Different garden, but you know. To watch and pray, lest the devil cause them through temptation to fall. The words of Paul, I think, are very relevant here at this point in Ephesians 5 Verses 18, uh, 15 to 18, I'll read it out of the NLT where Paul said, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity to serve the Lord in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Be in the word, know what God's will is, right? Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the holy spirit in other words guys the best defense against sin is a good strong offense be in the word be in fellowship hang out with the people of god so you can have accountability uh the best way to uh to resist temptation first of all not to put yourself in any kind of an environment where it's prevalent more than others environments and then secondly just be on the offensive. I mean, the devil can't trip you up if your mind is so filled with God he can't get in there to put temptation in your thinking. And I'll give you one more thing about temptation. Well, let me just say what Peter said along the lines of, of the best defense being a good, strong offense. 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 8 and 9. Stay alert. Watch out for your great, for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And you can read the rest of that. Let me just say one more thing about temptation and we'll move on. I'll just read you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. You all know it. Where Paul said, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man we all get tempted and by the way being tempted is not a sin the devil has convinced some christians that even you know, even then temptation is a sin no temptation is not a sin that's something that everyone as paul said deals with but when you're a christian he goes on but god is faithful to us as believers who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Well, with Joseph, he ran. And I think that's one of the best ways to deal with temptation. Get out of there. Get out of there. Run. Don't put yourself in a compromising position, but sometimes temptation will find you when you least expect it. And so God is saying to you, but I'll never let the devil tempt you in such a way that you will not be able to resist it. That's my promise to you. So when people say, it was just too strong, Pastor, I couldn't resist the temptation. Eh. Take him over to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. All right. Matthew 26, verse 42. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, guys, the first time he prayed to his father in verse 39, he said, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The second time he he partitions the father, he said, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, Your will be done. Now, please don't misunderstand what the Lord is doing here. What he is saying. Before we think that Jesus was trying to escape the cross, let's not forget the words he spoke earlier in his ministry in John 12. In fact, just turn there. John 12. Because this is important to see. Lest you think Jesus was trying to get out of the cross. Let's not forget what he said in John 12, starting with verse 27. He said, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I am committed to finishing the work you have given me to do. Guys, Jesus wasn't trying to get out of his mission to bring salvation to the people of this world. Listen to me. In his humanity, I believe he was speaking rhetorically and not literally here. He knew there was no other way for people to be saved except by him going to the cross. He knew that. He said earlier in the evening, John 14, right? Um, While they were still in the upper room, he said to his disciples in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen. No one comes to the Father except through me. He knew that. So what was he saying then? Well, one of my favorite uh, commentators, uh, William McDonald, uh, he said something I think is, is very important we understand, or hear what he had to say. Uh, William, William McDonald said, and I quote, the prayer was rhetorical. That is, it was not intended to elicit an answer, but to teach us a lesson. Jesus was, was saying, in effect, My Father, if there is any other way by which ungodly sinners can be saved, then by my going to the cross, reveal that way now. But in all of this, I want it known that I desire nothing contrary to your will. MacDonald says, What was the answer? He said, There was none. The heavens were silent. By this eloquent silence, we know that there was no other way for God to justify guilty sinners than for, than for Christ, the sinless Savior, to die as our substitute, end quote. Guys, if there was any other way for a person to be saved other than by Jesus going to the cross, then as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, uh, two verse 21, Christ died in vain. Now, we know this as evangelicals, but you know what? We need to, if, if if Jesus touched on it, and Paul hit it home, and the other apostles, um, I think that we need just to mention this, and we'll close. But the idea is that if there was any other way for a person to be saved other than by Jesus going to the cross, then, as Paul said in Galatians 2, Christ died in vain. And the context of that statement in Galatians 2. The context of Paul's statement was directed at those who believe that they had to keep the law of God. Think of the Ten Commandments. The law was 613 commandments. A little too many for us to think about. But think of the Ten. Okay, The Ten Big Ones. The Ten Commandments. There are those that believe that getting to heaven means you keep the Ten Commandments and plus believe in Jesus to be saved and go to heaven. And that concept is more prevalent and popular than most of us realize. And Paul responds by saying unequivocally that if people can be saved by religious practices, in other words, going to church, helping out in the local homeless shelter, lighting candles, praying the rosary, everything I did as a Roman Catholic, right? Uh, keeping commandments, sacraments, holy days, and by simply trying really hard to be a nice and good person. If you can get to heaven by all of that listen then jesus death on calvary's cross would have been unnecessary needless in vain folks the main lesson we need to take from jesus prayer to the father in the garden that morning was that if there was any other way for people to get saved and go to heaven than by jesus dying on the cross listen It would mean that the father ignored the prayer of his son in that garden and let him die for nothing. Now, guys, that is not only incomprehensible, it is blasphemous. It is blasphemous. Any so-called faith system that teaches that we can earn our salvation in any way, shape, or form is blatantly and blasphemously teaching that what Jesus did on Calvary's cross and dying for our sins was unnecessary, or at very least was insufficient in purchasing our salvation. Turn to Galatians 2, and we'll close. I want you to see this, even though you already know it. We're talking about Jesus' agony. You say, well, you've you, you, you gotten kind of off the subject. Because I know what you're thinking. How he agonized and began to sweat drops of blood. Yes, we're going there. But I think one of the things that God agonizes over, something that really hurts him deeply, is that after Jesus has gone to the cross and made a way for all sinners to be saved, there are those that believe they're still not good enough. Because they've been taught to get to heaven, you've got to believe in Jesus plus keep all the sacraments and the holy days and the feast days and light the candles and pray the rosary. I mean, help out for the, you know, doing for the poor and so on. And that must grieve the heart of God immensely because Jesus did all the work. But you know, after Paul came into an area and preached the gospel of grace, that we can't do anything to earn our salvation, it's a gift of God. Because God doesn't want anyone boasting in heaven, I deserve to be here, right? After Paul would leave an area like Galatia, which was not a country or a town, it was a region like Cook County, contains different municipalities, different towns. Same thing with Galatia. Galatia encompassed central and southern um, Turkey today. Asia Minor, but modern Turkey. And so after Paul preached the gospel of grace in Galatia, he moved on to preach it in other areas. And after he left the area the Judaizers, who were a group of Pharisees who believed in Christ, but still believed and taught you had to get circumcised, to the men keep the law of Moses, and then believe on Jesus, and you could be saved and go to heaven. That was not the gospel that Paul preached. And so again, Galatians two, verse twenty-one. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness, heaven, you know, comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And immediately he says in our chapter 3 verse 1 which were not there when paul wrote this epistle there were no chapter breaks or verse numbers right it's all one thought if you think you can get to heaven if you think righteousness comes by keeping commandments keeping the law then christ died in vain O foolish galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes jesus christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? How did you get saved? How did the Spirit come into you and save you? Was it by keeping the law of God? Or by, or was it by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you not going to be made perfect by the flesh? Guys, our salvation is a gift of God. We don't earn it. We can't. We simply reach out and receive it by receiving Christ as our Savior. It's all by faith. Now, once you do that and you're honestly born again, well, there are Christians who somehow find legalistic churches to be members of who will tell them, okay, you're saved because you accepted Jesus, but now you got to work really hard at living a holy life. And here's our list, things you can't do, and so on, to live a holy life. But you have to go ahead now. You have to work hard to become all that God wants you to be now that you're saved. It's called legalism. It robs Christians of their joy. It even pushes them to suicide. As one woman I was ministering to came from one of those churches, and the whole church tried to minister to her over about a month period. People were talking with her. She was so loaded down with guilt and condemnation, because in her mind she wasn't able to live up to this perfect life God was calling her to. The guilt was so heavy she finally eventually went back to that church, and about a month after that she committed suicide. This is of the devil. And that is the legacy of legalism. It destroys your joy. It robs you of your assurance. And sometimes it will even take your life. And I think this was some of the agony Jesus endured in that garden, if not on a physical level, on an emotional level, as he knew. He knew that what he was about to do on Calvary's cross was not going to be enough for some people. They were always going to think jesus plus baptism jesus plus circumcision jesus plus keeping commandments and that is not the gospel of grace so next time god willing we will continue as we look at jesus agony in the garden very important section that john leaves out but we're going to get from matthew going going forward father we thank you well, for your great love wherewith with you, loved us, and sending your son to die for us. And Jesus, for your great love that didn't force you to do anything, you gave your life freely for the sheep. Well, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word, that we would be eternally grateful to you, Lord, for dying in our place, paying our sins. We just thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.